When is the last time that you were at a really good party or celebration? Would you think about it for a minute? When, when's the last time that you were somewhere where you were celebrating and it was festive and it was just a celebration, a good time? For years, one of the things that I've been talking about here, and, and, and I, I see this in, in many of you, but I just it's, it's on my heart and it's uh, uh, just kind of there, that one of the things as Christians is that we need to be a people who celebrate. We need to be a people who rejoice. We need to be a people who party. And so a lot of times when it comes to Christmas or Easter, you'll hear me talking about kind of letting your hair down and celebrating what God has done. And as we as Christians, we should be better at partying than anybody else. It may not be that you're better at the electric slide than anybody else, or that you should even be doing the electric slide. I shouldn't be doing the electric slide. But we should be a people who are rejoicing, who are partying. Our God calls us to do this. In the Old Testament, over and over again, God's people are called to party, to hold festivals, to hold celebrations, to to lay out times of the year where you have days or even weeks where you come together and you just celebrate the goodness of what God has done and you celebrate trusting knowing what God will do. God calls His people to do this. And do you know that when we get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. That will be. <laughs> Just thought of that song. <laughs> but that's what we do in heaven. In heaven, it talks about, the Bible tells us that there will be rejoicing, there will be feasting, there will be partying in heaven. We will celebrate God in heaven for eternity. Not only that, But the Bible also tells us that there is celebration now in heaven. Just one place that the Bible tells us this is in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus is is, uh, uh, speaking and he's speaking with the Pharisees there and he's he's talking about, uh, he gives three parables. Do you remember this? He gives the parable of the lost coin and he says it's like when somebody... Sweeps the whole house, they find the lost coin. And do you remember what Jesus says at the end of that parable? In heaven, there is great joy and rejoicing over one lost person. And then Jesus tells the parable of the sheep. And at the end of that parable, Jesus again says, In heaven, there is rejoicing over one who is lost and now is found. And the third parable there in Luke chapter 15 that are all strung together is the parable of the prodigal son. And what do we have happen at the end of the parable of the prodigal son? The father kills the fattened calf because the prodigal has come home and there is great celebration and rejoicing. We as Christians are to mirror that. We are to be a people who rejoice, who celebrate, who go to the butcher and buy the steaks and come home and to grill and to celebrate with great feasting. Do you know that Jesus partied while He was here on earth? 
The first miracle that we see in the book of John, Jesus is where? He's at the wedding. And I don't think Jesus was just kind of hanging out in the back corner playing it cool. I think Jesus was celebrating the wedding. That Jesus was celebrating. In fact, we know He is called the friend of sinners. He was uh, wrongly accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. But why was He accused of those things? It was because oftentimes in His ministry, you could find Him celebrating and amongst people and, and living in such a way that the, the religious types looked at and was like, ooh, we don't know what to do with this. Now, Jesus wasn't like some high schooler who was going around saying, hey, where's the party? That's not what Jesus was doing. But Jesus was partying and celebrating for the right reasons. And Jesus saw the reasons to celebrate and was, was doing that. And, and again, I want to ask you, when was the last great celebration in your life? Maybe it was at a wedding. Maybe it was a birthday party. Maybe, maybe you found out that the cancer was in remission and you came home and you just celebrated. Maybe some of you, the last day out of quarantine from COVID, called a party. <laughs> I know what it was like in our house. And when you do these things, when you have a reason to celebrate, think of your attitude and think of your mindset. You go and you, you buy food you may not normally buy. You spend money you may not normally spend. Because you want to do it right. Now this next statement, I don't mean this as a buzzkill, because I'm continuing to talk about celebration here. But one of the things over the past three years, of, as we have lost um, some folks that just near and dear to our hearts, one of the things that I think is just so fitting and good is that as we come here, many times we pre-COVID, we've come here and had a celebration of life. Where somebody has passed on and they were believers and we look at their life and we celebrate their life and we end by breaking bread together and fellowshipping and talking and remembering. And, and I know for us, our hearts are heavy, but one of the things that we're looking to in those times of celebration of life is we know that those loved ones that are passed on are not mourning, but they are rejoicing in heaven with their Creator. And it just, it just spurs us along a little bit more to be able to celebrate what God has done. And so I would ask you, why don't you celebrate more? Why aren't we more celebratory than we are? I know there's a lot of bad news around. I don't even watch the news anymore. <laughs> I gave that up maybe a year ago. Uh, I'm lying. Slowly gave it up maybe a year ago. I don't watch it very much anymore. Maybe we're too focused on the negative. Maybe we're missing all the ways that God is at work in and around us. And so we, we as Christians don't celebrate because we, we, we are too focused on the negative in front of us. I hope, I hope that one of the reasons that you don't celebrate is because you think it's not proper. 
we think it's not proper. It is a lie that Christians should be stoic, non-emotional, and prude. That's not who we are called to be. Now, today, as we look at this text, we're going to find Jesus causing a stir again. And one of the reasons uh, that, that is given here that is creating a stir, one of the things that Jesus is doing is that He is at a party. But, but what I want to do is, is back up and, and see the bigger picture of what Mark is pointing out. And last week, our minds were, are supposed to have been blown and the Pharisees' minds were blown because Jesus was saying, I can forgive sins. And the Pharisees couldn't even believe it. And then this week, as we look, we see not only can Jesus forgive sins, but we see the kind of sinners that He forgives. It's not the clean. It's not the righteous. It's not the do-gooders. Jesus forgives sinners. And not only does He forgive sinners, hardcore sinners, but He celebrates and rejoices with them. We find Him in places that we may not expect. Now, one of the things that I think is just common, and this isn't, this is, this isn't only a church thing, is that, think about this with me for a moment. Probably times of great celebration and uh, great emotions in your life have probably come in times where you've been shown a lot of grace. So what would happen this morning or tomorrow morning? Let's say that you were doing an awful job at your work. Let's say that, I mean, and, and everybody knows it. You know it. The boss knows it. Those working around you know it. You're just doing a terrible job. You're loafing. You're sleeping. You're, you know, whatever, doing an awful job at your job would entail. And let's say that the boss comes into your office, you're expecting him to him or her to fire you, but instead they say, you know what? I, you may deserve to get fired, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. And they write you a check for $10,000. Pure grace. What would you do? You would probably buy a fattened calf on the way home. You'd rejoice. Oh my goodness, I, me? I, I've been doing awful or think maybe even more. Think if, think if you had committed a crime. Think if you were guilty of a crime. And that the punishment for your crime meant that you were going to spend years and years and years and years and years in prison. And you go in and you plead guilty. And for some reason the judge says, not guilty. I think you would go home, you would gather the family, and that you would celebrate. I think you would rejoice. I think you would feast. I think you would party. And in many ways, that's what's going on in our text. That as we get to our text this morning, in verse 14, it says that he, Jesus, passed by and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed me. But what we see is Jesus heading to this party that we see a man who was given much Grace. And to see how much grace this man was given, we've got to get in his life a little bit and to see who this man was. 
This man Levi is the same person that later we will know him as Matthew. One of Jesus' twelve disciples. In fact, he wrote the book of Matthew. This man, this man, this rise to discipleship came from a very unlikely place. I feel like a Netflix documentary right now. A very unlikely rise to discipleship. But what I want you to see in this call of Levi, I want you to see the grace of God in this. This man was known. He was a tax collector. And let me see, if you've been in church any amount of times, let me see if there's a, there's a word association that goes along here. Tax collectors and sinners. Boom. Goes right along. How would you like it if that was your profession? Accountant and sinners. It kind of is for some of you lawyers. Just kidding. Just joking, Chris. You know, my grandfather... Uh, my, my dad grew up in a really small town. Um, these days, the town my, my dad grew up in, uh, there's like five or six hundred people. Uh, but this was back in the booming days of this town. And uh, I think there were about 1,500 people in the town when dad grew up in it. This thriving metropolis in uh, southern Illinois. So not a lot of people. Everybody knew everyone. And my grandfather was known as the town drunk. My grandfather was an alcoholic. My dad was the oldest son. I'm sure the Belva name in that town was associated with my grandfather who was a drunkard and um, would get drunk and would do things that I'm sure that nobody in my family would be proud of. In fact, my dad tells stories of having to run the business at times when, and there were times he needed decisions from his dad and they would know exactly where he was. And they would, he'd have to go get him out of the bar, or he'd have to carry him home, or those sorts of things. All those things you can imagine. And so I, I think about how awful that stigma must have been, being the son of the town drunk, or being the town drunk yourself. And what I want to tell you this morning, is that being a tax collector, the stigma there was much, much worse. The idea of, being a tax collector, this in this day and age, as you know, uh, the Jewish people were under the rule of Roman authority. And being a tax collector, uh, you, you were kind of like a you kind of it's kind of like you owned a franchise. And the way this worked is that so you had to have money to become a tax collector, and you would give money to Rome in order to be a tax collector, and then you would work for Rome. And what Rome would do is that Rome would tell you, here's how much money that we need for, from you per year. Go out and collect the tax. And this was done in many different ways. And, uh, you know, uh, there were different types of tax collectors. One was, you know, anything that came in or out of the city that you could uh, gain taxes from. The issue became is that the way that the tax collector made his money was by charging money on top of what Rome charged so that he could make his living. So this is way worse than any IRS tax person that you know. And I've known some characters. This was worse. This was extortion. This was um, uh, uh, putting a burden on people. And then what made it even worse than that, if you think in these terms, 
is that this man, and this was often the case, this man Levi was a Jew. And so what he was doing is he was going to his own countrymen, his own people, and he was making a killing. Tax collectors were hated. They were hated. They were seen as literally sellouts. In fact, uh, there are ancient inscriptions that say that uh, many, there were there are little sayings that essentially equate to that tax collectors were uh, practically Gentiles, meaning they were unclean, they were unfit, they sold literally sold themselves out, they sold their birthright by by the fact of occupation, by by wanting to become rich, that they put themselves outside of the promises of God. Tax collectors were not allowed into synagogues and they weren't even allowed, uh, many times they weren't allowed to testify in court because they were seen as so untrustworthy. This is the kind of person that this man, Levi, was. But I don't think, I don't think that Levi was always this way. I mean, I can imagine, and I'm going to speculate quite a bit today, I'm going to speculate here and in a moment, but I can imagine that Levi probably grew up in a home like a normal Jewish little boy where he learned about the promises of God. He learned about the Scriptures. He learned about God and the history of the Jewish people. And he learned about maybe the prophecy that Messiah would come and rescue Israel. But somewhere along the way, he turned his back on all of that. And for money, for money, sold out his people. He literally sold his soul. So what kind of person do you think this was? What, how was he seen? In his community. But something happened. Because look at verse 14 again. So when Jesus saw Levi and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed Jesus. Now, one of the things that we know about the disciples that had been gathered at this time that were fishermen. Is that the fishermen could always go back to fishing. And in fact, we see the disciples do this later on. With this man, when he left this tax booth. He was leaving this lucrative occupation. He was literally walking away from something that made him a lot of money that he would not be able to go back to. And I want to ask this morning, what in the world happened? And I'm going to speculate in two areas. When we look at, if we were to go over to Luke chapter 3, you don't have to go there. And we see when Luke writes about John the Baptist, Luke writes that John was coming and and John's we get John's full message, which was a lot more harsh, which was about that uh, there is one coming with a winnowing fork and there is judgment coming. And are you going to be ready that he was preaching um, a gospel of repentance and he was preaching a gospel of wrath to come? And so what we have in the gospel of Luke Uh, When John the Baptist is out preaching this gospel, 
the natural response from the people is, is they're saying, what should we do? And John tells them what they should do. And what's interesting, it says in verse 12, as people are coming to John asking him, what shall we do? Uh, Luke makes this note that even tax collectors came to John and asked, what should we do? You know what Jesus tells them? He doesn't tell them not to be tax collectors anymore. That's not what he tells them. He tells them, don't collect more than is requested. So what I want to speculate for a moment, is it possible, is it possible that Matthew, that Levi was there and he heard about this coming Messiah and that he was convicted in his heart and he was amongst this crowd that was asking, what can I do? And he was told, don't collect anymore. So then as he's sitting back at his tax booth and he sees Jesus, well, no doubt I'll follow you. My heart's already been primed for this. And that's just speculation. And it's possible, I think, that this is what went on. But what I think that we definitely know is that as Levi is sitting where he was sitting on the main thoroughfare coming in and out of Capernaum, he would have known and heard about this Jesus. He would have known and heard about this miracle working man. He would have known and heard about this message. As we have been saying all along, there has been scuttle about all throughout Capernaum. I mean, it says that all people were healed. All demons were cast out. Jesus would have known and he would have... Or, or, This man, Matthew, Levi, would have known and he would have heard. And what do you think that he was thinking, maybe as he even heard that Jesus is coming down the road and that here he sits? Here he sits. A dirty, guilty tax collector. What do you think he might have thought? Maybe he thought that as Jesus came by that he'd just ignore him and not even acknowledge him for the scum that he is. Maybe he was thinking, oh my goodness, Jesus is going to treat me, he's going to chastise me, he's going to scold me, he is going to just read me the riot act up one side and down the other. And what does Jesus do? (laughs) He invites this man to be one of his disciples. What grace. What mercy. As Jesus looks at this man and says, You, you, sitting at the tax booth, you follow me. No wonder we get to verse 15. And what we see is that, uh, that and it came and it happened that he was, Jesus was reclining at the table in his house, in Levi's house. And they were eating and they were festive. Again, in Luke chapter 5 that gives this account, Luke calls it a great banquet. Can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine the excitement? Can you imagine, uh, you know, I'm sure Levi here, Matthew, just pulled out all the stops. Because Jesus was coming to his house and this great thing had happened. And notice what else that Matthew did. 
Matthew invited all of his rowdy friends over. And it tells us, look again in verse 15. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were doing what? They were following Jesus. (laughs) Isn't this awesome? Wouldn't you have liked to have been at that party? Wouldn't you have liked to have been sitting there? What I want you to also notice is that there were party poopers. There were party poopers. There were Pharisees. And notice in verse 17, um, it says in here, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 16, and the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, and they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? You see, eating and dining with someone in this day, and this is the way it is today as well to some degree, meant a closeness, an intimacy, a familiarity. And so they were looking and saying, how dare this man eat with these dirty, awful, sinful people? And what would happen, what would happen is that you'll see that this becomes a habit of Jesus and the Pharisees don't like it anymore. They, they continue to, to look at Him and to, to accuse Him. And, and there's something else going on in this text that we need to see. And, and that is, is that Mark is pointing to an escalation of the Pharisees' relationship with Jesus. If you remember last week, as Gary taught us, one of the things that we learned is that some of these Pharisees were coming from really far away And they were following Jesus around, kind of checking Him out. And if you remember last week in our passage in verse 6, when Jesus had said um, that your sins are forgiven, in verse 6 and through 7 it tells us this, but some of the scribes were sitting there, and look what it says, they were reasoning where? In their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And I want you to notice the escalation that Mark is trying to point us towards. Look in verse 16. Again, it says, When the scribes and Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, notice this, they said to his disciples. Next week we're going to see them coming right to Jesus and talk right to Jesus. So there's this escalating tension. And what these Pharisees and these scribes are saying is that this is not what a holy man does. This is not what the Messiah would come and do. The Messiah is not going to come and call a tax collector who is working with Rome. The Messiah would punish that man. You see, the Pharisees' worldview was quite a bit different than the worldview we have in the Bible, the worldview of Jesus. The Pharisees' worldview is that they needed to separate themselves from the world. That they needed to cleanse themselves. That they needed to act in a certain way. And and that they thought they could qualify for godliness by acting and doing certain things. So that maybe when the Messiah came, that He would see them, see how they were following the law perfectly, and that these would be His people. 
What they were missing was the point of the law was to show us our need for a savior. Right when the law was given in the Old Testament, the point of the law was to show that there was that we were in need of a savior. We were in need of cleansing. And so God made a way. And that the prophecy said that God would ultimately make a way. But what was going on in the life of the Pharisee is that they were trying to cleanse themselves, cleanse themselves, cleanse themselves so much so that by this time, the Pharisees had added hundreds of things to the law. So that to be a Pharisee, there were hundreds of new laws that you would follow in order to be more holy, more acceptable, more pure. And the problem that Jesus had with this, and the problem that the Pharisees ultimately had, was it gave them a false sense of security. That they felt like, I'm okay, I'm not sick. And so these words of Jesus would have just pierced It should have pierced them, but it didn't, unfortunately, many of them. In verse 17, where Jesus said, in hearing this, he said to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call the sinners. Hmm. Look at the book of Romans. You don't have to turn there. I'll turn in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the Gospel message. You can't clean yourself up enough to make God accept you. That we are helpless, hopeless sinners And this is why Christ came and why Christ died. And so I want to ask a careful question here. Can a Pharisee be saved? If Jesus is saying, I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners, can a Pharisee be be saved? And what I want to say is, absolutely. But in order for a Pharisee to be saved, they must first recognize their need. And I know that when we look at the Gospels, one of the things that we see over and over again is that Jesus is very harsh towards the Pharisees. But I want to even say this is an act of love of Jesus trying to confront them in their sin, trying to jar them loose. Because one of the things I find interesting this week as I was studying and looking at a lot of different things that didn't make it into the sermon, one of the things that I noticed was how many times Jesus actually was sitting and eating with the Pharisees. Not only that, but one of the most famous passages that we look towards when we talk about salvation in the Bible, John chapter 3, is Jesus interacting with a Pharisee, Nicodemus, and Jesus lovingly sitting him down and telling him how he too could be saved. So the issue here is that the Pharisee, the sinner, the tax collector, needed to see their need and needed to see who Jesus was. Jesus loved the Pharisees and would have loved them to come and join the party. So I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you marvel at the grace of God? 
Do you look at the celebration? Do you see the grace of God in your life and in others' lives? And does that draw you into celebration? Or do you identify more with the Pharisees? One time, about 10, 12 years ago, uh, my father and I were at a, um, and I want to be careful here that I don't slip up and give away things. We were at a meeting, a denominational meeting, that we were not a part of. Um, and what we were doing is that we were talking to the folks in this denomination about um, how to care uh, for their congregants and those around. And so it was our job to talk about, uh, we, we, were, we were just discussing things like, you know, if you have people in your congregation or people who are coming into your congregation who are struggling with addiction, um, here are some things that, you know, that, that you need to be aware of or... You know, if you, you know, some people in your church or, or that come in, if they're, you know, having affairs or, uh, you know, these type of things. And I'll never forget, there was this, there was this lady, this older lady, and she raised her hand in the middle and dad called on her. Dad was talking and she stood up and you know what she said to everybody? We don't want those kind of people in our church. And she sits down. And everything inside of me, I was wanting to kind of wag my finger at her as a young, you know, as a young whippersnapper. And thankfully, my dad, in a very gracious way, um, you know, not missing a beat, um, said, you know, when I read the Bible, I tend to see the church as a place for people who know they're in need of a physician. He said, I see the church as a hospital. Where people come in need of, of care and attention. Not a museum for the saints. A place where you come in and you look and you look at, oh, look how wonderful this person is. I'll never be like that. We, we marvel at a piece of art and say, oh, I can never do that. And he really kindly pointed her towards the pharisaical notion that was going on in her heart now i want to i want to push this even further i push this even further this lady was saying we don't want those kind of people in our church right i want to push this further i can't tell you the number of people that i've talked to who i've invited to church or i've invited their loved ones to church and what i've heard back and this is a this is a southern saying i think I don't know if this is everywhere, but I think this is something I'm saying. But one of the things that I hear is that, oh, I can't come to your church or so-and-so won't come to your church. They're scared what's going to happen. The steeple's going to fall on them. Y'all have heard this, right? Have y'all heard this? Or is this just me? Oh, okay. I can't tell you how many people have told me, I can't, come into, I can't come to church. The steeple will fall in if I show up there. In other words, they feel so guilty about the life they're living or how long it's been since they've been to church or whatever that they, they think that something bad will happen if they come to church. I can't tell you, in some of the celebrations of life that we've had, I've had people come and tell me, after about five or ten minutes, they're like, I almost had a panic attack coming in here. Whoa. That's weird. Why, why do they feel this way? Well, they feel unworthy. And so here's the question I would ask. Did Christ encounter Levi at the synagogue? 
Would Levi have ever gone into the synagogue? Where did Christ encounter Levi? He encountered Levi where Levi was. Now, I want to be extremely careful here. I want everybody to hear me straight when I talk about what I'm getting ready to talk about. Hear me. Many churches have had a really good, hear me say this, a good impulse to do some really cool and great things to try to get people into the church. Things like this. And hear me saying this, good things. The intention is to get lost people inside the church. Like some churches will have like a coffee bar that's open all week. And people will come in and they hang out and they're drinking coffee inside the church. Some churches have opened gym, gyms where you can come in and you can get buffed while listening to J103 or whatever. Some churches, one of my favorite is, there's one church, I don't know if it's still open, but it has a swimming pool. Great idea. Sometimes, I don't know if y'all, uh, some of you younger folks, probably this wouldn't ever draw you in, but when I was younger, uh, you know, there would be like a Christian skate night to where you, uh, you know, they play Christian music and you'd go and get your roller skating moves on, which I never went to because I fell on my face. Or cosmic Christian bowling. These are wonderful impulses. Another one that, that you know, as I have young kids that, that we heard of several years ago that I think still go on is that some churches even have like these sports leagues where they, you, you can come and you can be a part of this. Uh, my only knock on that is they don't keep score. You know, I think that's a little weird. Don't give everybody a trophy either. Those things are good things. And I think people are saved and come into the kingdom through those avenues. And so I am not saying don't do those things. But what I am saying is that it's not enough. It's not enough. If Jesus were here, where would Jesus drink coffee? Both places. Where would Jesus work out? Both places. The secular gym and the church gym. If Jesus worked out. What I'm saying is that we can't stay within the four walls and complete the mission that Christ has called us to fulfill. It won't work. It doesn't work. I have no memory of my dad's father, my grandfather, ever coming into a church building. He stopped drinking when my sister was born because my parents told him that if he was going to drink around us that he couldn't see the grandkids. So I, I have no memory of him drinking, but I also have no memory of him ever going into a church building. And in fact, I remember the rejoicing in our home when we found out that my grandfather, who had cancer and was terminal, and was terminal in his cancer, had come to know Christ in the hospital. And I remember my dad talking about, my dad will now talk often about that growing up in what he grew up in, he didn't know if that salvation experience was real. He, I think he doubted, could this man really come to Christ? And I'll never forget him coming home and telling us, uh, he, I, think, I, think it was, I think they were up in Cookville at the time or somewhere, and uh, coming home and telling us that my grandfather 
had been watching all week Billy Graham on TV. And his his thing was he wanted to get out of the hospital so that he could go to my dad's church and be baptized. Here's the point. I'm so thankful that the church didn't wait inside those four walls for my grandfather to get better because he never left the hospital. I'm so thankful that somebody went to him. And what I want to tell you is that we are ambassadors for Christ. We are carrying the message of Christ with us. We are called as God's ambassadors to go out and to seek the lost and to share the good news with them. And we must be about this business. We must be people who are looking to celebrate the greatest news of all time. And we must kill any pharisaical impulse that we may have. And do you know how to do that? When you feel yourself getting judgy towards someone else or to think about those type of people, I think it's as easy as this. You need to think about the day that that grace came into your life. That you were dead in your trespasses, trespasses and sins. But God made you alive. And that we have to constantly train ourselves to see past the perceptions that we have of other people. And we must see the reality that God still saves sinners. Do you believe this church? Do you believe that God still saves sinners? I want us to believe it more than we do. Let us be a people who rejoice over the lost coin being found. The lost sheep being brought in. And the prodigal son coming home. Let us be a people who long to kill the fattened calf to celebrate what God has done. That the lost son has come home. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, You are the one who does far more than we can even think or imagine. God, let us go boldly out from here, out from these walls, to be ambassadors of your good news to a world around us that is dying. Let us be coaches. Let us be um, uh, friends at coffee shops. Let us be people who take your message with us to work. To other moms on the playground. Let us be a people who invest our lives for the sake of the kingdom. Let us be a people who rejoice over the great news that your son has come. Let us be a people who rejoice over what God is doing in this generation. He, you are calling people to yourself. Let us rejoice that we can be a part of that. And it's all only possible in your son's name.